0: Welcome to this, the second in our two-part podcast, talking to Richard Fryer about his adventures at sea and in his beloved West Indies. In this episode, we discuss his new book, Lost Odyssey, and about the sailing boat that inspired the story, a vessel with which a decade ago he formed what he describes as an at-times abusive relationship. We hear too about the magic of travelling by sailboat, and why almost by definition you'll find yourself in the historic heart of the places that you visit. And Richard explains why after three decades his West Indian dreams came to nothing. Lost Odyssey is a collection of letters that charts Richard's relationship with and travels aboard Odyssey. He takes us on a journey through what one reviewer describes as rum-soaked bars, street parties and verdant mangroves. It's both keenly observed and often very funny indeed. We started the second part discussing his decision to splash the cash and make Odyssey his own. My name's Stuart Bailey, and this is Hastings in Focus. Having looked at the, your background and how you, how you got there, that kind of brings us to your, your book, um, Lost Odyssey, where you're heading back out there, to buy your own boat, and I think you describe it as, you, you see it as a work project and not a labour of love. But when you read some of the letters that you write, um, clearly there was an element of it being a labour of love, although I think earlier on you suggested to me that it was also an abusive relationship. <laughs> um, and, and and you get that. I mean, the, the book is written in the form of a series of letters, which I think you, you say you've... You wrote to your mother, um to your children and some old mates um around the world. um and the the letters really do catch that kind of roller coaster ride that you you obviously had putting it together. but i I love when you arrive you've you've obviously you know, checked out Odyssey and I, I presume seen pictures, but when you get there, you see it for real very quickly. And then I, I like the story of, of, of the first night you're there where you're obviously sort of kind of wrestling with the idea of should I or shouldn't I? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, well, it's a big commitment buying a boat. Even if you're buying a boat in your own country, um, then you are, it, it's, uh, you know, you're entering into a relationship in, in a way that I don't think really occurs with any other kind of an inanimate object. Um, there is something about the connection between, uh, you know, a, a man uh, or woman and, and their boat in the sense that, you know, if you are going to go, assuming you don't do what some people do, and that's just keep it in the marina the whole time. Uh, If you're going to go off on proper adventures, then there are times when that boat will be your your mother and you will be utterly dependent on it. And then when you're in the harbour, she's dependent on you mending her and looking after. So she becomes your child. So it's it's a very interesting relationship. Um, Also with boats, Another question somebody once asked me was that, um, well, isn't it is it a little bit like fixing up buying a property to fix a property up? I said, well, I said, well, it is. There are similarities, but the thing about a property is, is that you could, you know, you could get you could get banged up and, and you know, in, in prison for two years and come back, or you could go away traveling and leave, leave the property, and it will slowly deteriorate. It may even burn down to the ground, but they will have still have the residual land value to it, and um, there was it'll never its value will never go to nothing. Whereas with a boat. If you don't keep looking after it and stuff, it will go to nothing. In fact, it will then sink to the bottom of the sea and become nothing. So Mm. it's a a much more intense uh, relationship, much more of a commitment. Um, I would say that there's a somewhat hackneyed uh, phrase known known to boat owners, which you might not have heard before, but they say that um, the day you buy a boat is the second happiest day of your life. Uh, and the day that you sell it is, is the happiest. So it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose from the experience
0: you'd had in 98, it really demonstrated how your life depends
1: on the, the quality and, yes. and
0: dependability of your boat.
1: Yes, that's certainly true. Although it was never my intention really to take Odyssey across an ocean if I um, I did sort of have a half a half sort of pipe dream and I might bring her back to the UK because I knew I would get more money for her uh, if I were to do that. But to have got, although I got Odyssey um, um, seaworthy by the end of it, uh, she was perfectly seaworthy to sail between the islands and sail up to Fort Lauderdale. If, if I wanted to set off and bring her back across the Atlantic, you know, I, I realized I would have had to replace all of the running rigging. I would have, you know, I would have had to spend a lot more money to get her ready for that kind of trip so there are kind of levels of uh, you know seaworthiness
0: because you, you planned it was a kind of two-year project to to the store wasn't it
1: yeah i expected i expected you know to be realistic that i would whatever happened i would own her for two years you know that was the likely outcome even if i'm if you know even if the work took a you know relatively short amount of time and uh I got her sea weather quite quickly. I, it wasn't just about fixing up a boat, it was about me having one last go, one last proper look at the West Indies uh, and, and to see whether or not I had the discipline to live there, whether I wanted to live there uh, and uh, whether or not I could get myself up to the standard where I could be a solo skipper and uh, take people chartering, so, so therefore you know, to see if I could make a living out there. Yes. So It was, it was about, about me really having a significant um, effort to see whether I wanted to emigrate somewhere else. And the boat was really the the key way of doing that. Because by that time, your relationship with West Indies was, what, 30 years old? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So just that constant pool back there. I
1: did, and also the thing is that the islands that are down at the bottom there, the Windward Islands and the Leeward Islands, are, are what people call the real West Indies. They're the, one, the really big, mountainous, lush islands with their own rivers and streams, you know, uh, with the mangoes and... And I'd never been, I'd never been to that end of the West Indies, so I'd never really felt that I had a proper, proper go, and never hadn't really seen that end, which was, which was the part that I dreamt of, up at the top end of the West Indies. There, the islands are drier, and also this there's, there's, tourism is far more prevalent up there. And certainly now they've been changed significantly. The what I would call the old West Indies is not, isn't there anymore. And in fact, there's very little of it left. There's still some to be found in Grenada and in Dominica and Saint Vincent. In fact, actually it's the islands with the black sand beaches are the ones which are still relatively unspoilt because for some reason tourists don't like white, don't like black sand beaches. Mm. They only want to go places with white sand beaches. But, um, yeah, I wanted to have a proper, a proper look, um, at the West Indies and see whether or not that's where I wanted to live. Mm. So
0: has it so world, you've sort of taken the tourist chilling in many ways? And-
1: yes. It's been gradually swamped by the European or American, uh, culture. Um, and the kind of tourism that goes on there is you know these are then it's not necessarily what's called all inclusive, but there are kind of Chinese walls between the, the the local culture and the tourist culture whereby the tourists are really encouraged to stay in one area you know near to their big long white sand beach. and the only interaction they have with the locals is either with them working behind the bar or security guards. Or, you know, somewhat tired people that want to put beads in their hair on the beach. They, they don't have any. Uh, that's one of the real issues for me about the way the West Indies has become and maybe has always been is that there's this kind of oil and water uh, non mixing of cultures, you know, and I, I find that problematic. I, f- I found it problematic at the Antigua Classics where I write about, you know, I write about it in the fact that it's, it's a billionaire's playground. There are super yachts by the dozen and they come and they have their big party and they have their, they have their big regatta but the locals don't really earn they don't gain anything out of that so you know if what's a, a, a man up on the hill in his little shack bar worrying about how he can feed his children look, looking down on the harbor and all that all that wealth you know it, it's not difficult to imagine him making the jump to want to want to do something radical you know i'm not saying that you know people every now and again someone gets mugged and stuff in in those places, and uh, there, there's surprisingly little of that. But there is some, and, and it's very, very. Un- I'm surprised there isn't more of it, to be honest. Mm. I mean,
0: in terms of the book, um, you, each of the letters is, is dated, from, so you can sort of follow the chronology um, through. But did you were they written at the time? Did you write them with the plan to create a book eventually, or did the idea of the book come come later?
1: Well, no, I didn't. I wrote them uh, by the week. Uh, sometimes so much had happened, you know, uh, I might not. It might have been ten days or two weeks before I got the chance to write up everything that had happened in the in the, <clears throat> in the ensuing period. But no, they were all written chronologically. Um, I think there were probably only two that I didn't send to my mother, um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I think I went out there. I'd already written The Paradise Myth, as I, as I say, so I had a go at writing, and I'd written another un, unpublished manuscript. So I did think that a side effect of, of the trip would be that I would write a letter every week, or I would write about it, and so there would be a, a body of work that would come out of it. But at the beginning, certainly at the beginning, I had no real inkling that it would become something that might, you know, I, I decided was worth trying to put into a book. Hmm.
0: It's, it's certainly it's, it's a it's a fascinating story, and as I say, catches catches that sort of uh, roller coaster. Of, I suppose the 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 riding the waves, might be a bit but it certainly catches that emotional journey that you that you want throughout, and even right to the end, um, you have you you have you have your issues. Yeah. Um, you you because you're coming up from Cuba, because and that was causing some issues. Um, getting back to, to the US.
1: yeah. Tell me a little more about that. About well that. yeah, right right at the very end, uh, well not only was I coming and I I, uh, we went, I was expecting to try, I, I pulled in at Fort Lauderdale before on a previous uh, voyage with Lilibet and it had been, all been very informal but that was before nine eleven, and so this time the like whole of you, America as you probably know is it's a far more uh, complicated place to get into and so Um, in order to arrive by sea you were supposed to have a visa and I I, I failed to manage to procure one of these in the Dominican Republic so I I already knew that I was going to be coming without a visa that's going to be a problem and um, then it transpired that right you know we were coming from Cuba which wasn't a problem for me but but when I decided to put the boat on the market and had to go through the bureaucracy involved with that that they found out that I was importing a boat from Cuba and suddenly that that also could have been could have been pretty complicated in fact i was only two days two or three days from coming back uh on my my the flight that i'd booked and there was still a chance that they could have they were going to throw me out of the country and i was either going to have to leave the boat on the dock uh, uh the most expensive dock i've ever uh, parked my boat on wh- whilst i sorted out my visa requirements and came back or i was going to have to single hand her across the uh Across the channel, uh, sixty miles across the channel to the Bahamas, and and uh, sort my visa out of there, and then bring her back again. So yes, it was uh, it was it wasn't a done deal until I was on that damn plane <laughs> on my way home.
0: <laughs> One of the other things I I love in your your, your own description of, of the boats and, and of Odyssey in particular, um, and you're comparing it to a little bit the the, the boat you did the 1998 trip in. Oh yes. and you I think you. You wrote this while looking Odyssey across a harbour um, and you were comparing it to wouldn't, and you described bit as a hippie chick in need of rehab while Odyssey is a middle aged woman with a few kids mm. um, and that sort of it certainly in my mind conjures up what the boats must have looked like so, <laughs> so obviously very different in nature
1: Yes, Lillibut was definitely a love match, she was uh, she was a gorgeous um, wooden um wooden sloop built in the manner of a fife uh, built in the 1930s where when they built perhaps some of the most beautiful wooden boats uh, ever um, and uh, she was a racer and uh, she sailed like an absolute she sailed like a witch you know she was a very much superior sailing boat to odyssey but of course as is often the case unless you're talking very large boats um if a boat's a, a very good sailing boat it's not necessarily going to be a very good liverboard because it might be narrow in the beam and you know the way that she's constructed Whereas Odyssey, although she wasn't the best sailing boat in the world, she was a fantastic liverboard for the West Indies. You know, she was spacious. She had loads of portholes and stuff. So, you know, I, and I knew that that was what I was going to be mostly doing. If I'd, if I bought a, a boat with the intention of making lots of long passages, I probably wouldn't have bought Odyssey. But um, yeah, I do remember that, that description of being something like uh, a middle-aged woman who'd been... Uh, been out for a long weekend and and had a bit of too good a time of it and was on her way back home. (laughs) Um,
0: Since Odyssey, um, was that the end of your, has that been the end of your sailing? Is that the end of your sailing or or, or what do you still want to do?
1: Well, I've, um, I think I've got the West Indies out of my system. I've certainly got the idea of living on a boat in the West Indies out of my system. Um, I think that perhaps if I met somebody who was passionate about wanting to sail across the Pacific and, they got the money to uh you know pay their way pay their half half share then there's a possibility my my interest could be rekindled but i've not got no particular interest in in um doing that kind of thing i still want there's adventures i want to have but they are most of them are far from the coast and most of them are deep inland there are plenty of places in the world to go and see that don't involve having having to buy a boat but having said that i am back in touch now mm-hmm. with the the people from ice maiden that um, vessel I told you about that I did the North Atlantic crossing, and what they're doing now I helped I helped them bring her back across the Irish Sea, uh, back in the autumn, and they have set her up now as a survey vessel. So what they're doing is they are going out hunting for wrecks, wrecks which may still have salvageable treasure on them. And this this kind of treasure is not like you know uh, chests with full of rubies and and emeralds and stuff. It's this this is like copper you know copper cargoes or one particular. Cargo that this that one boat that he wants to go and find is is a boat that was sunk by U-boats in World War Two, and she had a cargo of uh, Hawker Hurricanes that had been manufactured in uh, Canada for the war effort. And uh, if um, if she's sunk upright and the, those crates are still relatively intact, then those airplanes now will be worth a lot of money. So here he's got some some very sophisticated side scanning radar, and he's got an ROV, and uh, they're they're pretty well set up to go out and, and hunt for these wrecks. So. I'm going down to Cornwall uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and we're going to, where she's based in Penzance, so we're going to go out into the Irish Sea and various other places that I can possibly disclose, and uh, we're going to go wreck hunting. So, yeah, there's that There's that going. On. I'm, I'm on a 16th share, I've negotiated that, so <laughs> if we do find anything. But
0: once again, returning to that, it's a bit of an adventure. I, I take it you're not a man who sort of put on your boat in a little boat just off the coast, that's not going to be satisfying for you.
1: No, I've never been somebody who really wanted to go do sailing for its own sake. I mean, there is when you learn, there is a fascination about what's actually going on with the, you know, how it, how it all works with the wind and the, uh, the sails. And uh, when you go racing, it's always very, very, especially if you're racing under under a, an experienced skipper, then it's, in, you, it's intense. And you learn um, a lot about the technicalities of sailing. And uh, that can be pretty rewarding, and it can help you in your passage making. But I'm not. I was never somebody who was very interested in just getting the boat out and kind of sailing around the boys and having a little regatta and then taking it back into the marina. It was always about uh, journeys for me. Owning a sailing boat was about a way that you could go from A to B, and when you got to B, you had everything that you needed um, with you. You didn't need to go into a hotel. And also, quite often, one of the greatest magics about uh, using a sailing boat for travel is that if you if you go to a place where there's a historic harbour you know a, a sea town or a seaport that's built around uh, it's, it's nautical past then you're almost inevitably you end up right in the heart of the oldest bit of town that that's where the harbour is that's that's the raison etch for it to be there so all of the best bars all of the best architecture and the oldest buildings are all there and you're you're right in the heart of that and that's the and you've come in under the wire you haven't come through, you know, like cattle through an airport. Or, or, you've come through in a different way, and you're treated in a different way, and um, that is there's a kind there's a, a real magic to that. Richard, it's been absolutely fascinating talking
0: to you. That's been amazing, and I, I hope your treasure hunt goes well. <laughs> come back and tell us more about that if it's successful. I shall. Yeah. If you want to get yourself a copy of Richard's book, and it's a really good read, it's called Lost Odyssey. It's published by Idol Vice Publications, and it's available on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle. Locally, you can pick it up at The Bookkeeper, Printed Matter, Bookbuster, and The Edge Cafe. We're sure you'll enjoy it.